Happy World Whale Day! And welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Coral, Kelp, and Community. Today, we are chatting with Tara Brock, Pacific Council for Oceana, and we're going to be chatting all about whale entanglements. Okay, let's talk whales. So, Oceana does a lot of work on a whole variety of issues, which is amazing. And there will be links in the show notes so people can look at everything they're doing. But today, uh, we're just going to focus on one issue, which is whale entanglement. My lovely guest, Tara, she is going to explain, uh, just lay some groundwork for us of what this issue is. Absolutely. Well, entanglement in fishing gear, which could be really all manner of gear. One of the primary is pot and trap gear, but nets, all the different ways that we catch uh, seafood can have uh, impact, can entangle whales when there are lines or netting in the water, uh, particularly because whales migrate along our coast on the West Coast um, and they don't stay in one place. So they're going to run into gear. And the International Whaling Commission identifies entanglements in fishing gear as the main human-caused threat to large whales worldwide. And they estimate around 300,000 whales, dolphins, and porpoises uh, are, die from entanglement every year. And since 2014, off the West Coast, we've seen a dramatic increase in entanglements. Um, with the peak of that happening around 2016, where 56 whales were confirmed entangled off our coast. This is also a major issue on the Atlantic coast for the North Atlantic right whale, which are critically endangered. And both ship strikes and entanglement in fishing gear, particularly lobster gear, uh, is, is contributing to their decline and a major issue for the promise of recovery for that species. So once whales become entangled, um, they can drag the gear for up to six months behind them. And that inhibits their ability to move, to feed, to get to their breeding grounds. Um, and you can just imagine this weighs, weighing them down and slowing them down, how, much, how taxing that is. And not only does it tire them and reduce their ability to move and feed, but it also can cut very deeply into them. And so even if they are able to disentangle themselves or a disentanglement team is able to you know, remove the gear, it can still result in fatality. The National Marine Fisheries Service estimates around 75% of entanglements are fatal ultimately. And we know that there's confirmed entanglements. We know this is happening. We know it's an issue. But they also estimate that that's only about 10% of the total amount of entanglements. So last year alone, there were 30 confirmed entanglements off the West Coast. So about 10%. So we're, we're probably closer to a couple hundred that are happening because obviously you don't see this. Gear is set, particularly trap gear. It's set and whales might swim into it and carry it away. Oftentimes, like I said, it can be up to six months. Oftentimes we don't discover it until that animal has passed. Um, or we'll find them hundreds of miles way away from where they initially got entangled. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the main issue with whale entanglements um, is that we have gear in the water 
and a lot of times it's unseen and then these whales are dragging them for months on end um, so there's there's some good solutions to this issue that we've been working on um, which i'm sure we'll talk about more in a minute but that's the kind of main overview and it, it's a really um frankly it's a tragic it's a tragic issue because the the pictures are devastating you see these ropes cutting into whales and and also just you can imagine the pain that they go through and it's a very slow and painful death it's i think it's interesting that you suggested this topic because i recently have seen quite a few of these heroic acts of freeing whales from nets in my social media feed just by coincidence um but to give to, to provide a little perspective for listeners uh, which I didn't have until I saw these videos, uh, these nets, some of them are massive. Like we think, oh, whales are so big. What's a little, you know, fishing net gonna do? But, you know, that's that's when you're thinking more of like the smaller scale fishermen, like the fishermen next door vibes, this very picturesque image, which those exist, but not all fishing is like that. And in one of the reports you shared, uh, it noted that there was, a net that was 552 feet that was removed from a whale. And it's just like, you know, we think whales are big and these nets are just absolutely massive. And um, it really speaks to like how intense it would be to drag something like that around for six months. Um, it's a whole, it's a whole lot. Uh, but so of course, we don't want this to happen to the whales. And, you know, the, the fishers also don't want this to happen, right? It causes problems for them. Absolutely. Fishermen, I think, are some of the last, you know, they will are the first to say that we, this is the last thing we want to do is entangle whales. And Oceana, one of the things we have been doing um, along the West Coast is sitting on uh, advisory committees with fishermen to try to come up with solutions that work for, for the fleet and for the whales. And so we have, you know, some, those are varying levels of success, but absolutely fishermen don't want to be entangling whales. Um, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act, the states actually for authorizing their fisheries, they have to get incidental take permits. and. Currently, none of the West Coast states have those. So they're in the process. They were actually, California was actually sued over their lack of a incidental take permit. And so that prompted this whole uh, convening of an advisory committee and ensuring that they were moving towards management measures to reduce entanglements so they can submit a conservation plan under the Endangered Species Act and receive their incidental take permit for permitting the Dungeness crab fisheries specifically. And Oregon's in the same place right now. Um, they have some temporary management measures in place to try to reduce entanglement, um, primarily focused at reducing co-occurrence. So making sure we're not setting pots where the whales are going to be. Um, and they are drafting a conservation plan to also try to receive an incidental take permit. So it's not just the nobody wants to be entangling whales. You know, nobody wants that to happen, especially fishermen. Um, they're probably out on the ocean some of the most, right? They love the ocean. That's why they do what they do. Um, and, you know, I, it's it's that side of things, don't want to entangle whales, but also just the legal requirements that need to be met and that fisheries can be shut down if they don't meet the legal standards that are in place. 
it sounded it sounded like you were starting to already answer one of my other questions, which is how Oceana works with the various community members and stakeholders to find you know the best solutions all around. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, we absolutely work with other NGO partners on this. Oceana is certainly not the only organization that works on whale entanglements. So there are the other conservation groups that work on this. And we've um, put together sort of little coalitions um, in, in each state working on this. But also, again, working with the fishing industry and sitting on state convened entanglement committees to look at how we reduce risk and what is going to work for everyone um, the best we can. And we know really the best way to reduce entanglements, particularly in pot and trap fisheries like crab fishery, you think of the traditional crab pots, the conventional crab pots have a vertical line that goes to the surface. And so that is where whales get entangled. And so if we can remove those vertical lines in the water, we know that's a pretty sure way to reduce entanglement risk and almost eliminate it in, mo in most cases. So working with fishermen to actually test new gear that's being developed and, and working with various foundations and the sanctuaries and others on testing of new gear. Um, there's a lot of great gear development that's happened in other places. Um, this is happening on the East Coast as well due to North Atlantic right whales and in other parts of the world it's used. And uh, it's interesting actually these, these systems were actually developed I think for more like naval purposes, like not actually for fishing, but as we've, as this problem has become more acute and people are recognizing it, they have been adapted to help remove that vertical line in the water. So there's still more testing to be done. And some of the fleet certainly has been resistant to that, you know, change is, it can be difficult, it can be expensive, it's an unknown. Um, and so there has been some resistance to this, but we just know that it's the, you know, the path forward. So what Oceana has been doing is California, as you mentioned, in particular, has a system right now where if there's too many whales in the too many whales. Well, if there's whales in the area, <laughs> but there is a threshold, there's never too many whales. There's never too many whales. There are thresholds in place whereby if, if enough whales are sighted in the area, then areas close to, to conventional crab fishing. And one of our goals is to say, well, let's, let's allow the use of these gears, these pop-up gears in those areas so that fishermen can keep fishing even when there's closure, early closures because we've eliminated that risk and we know whales can safely swim through when there's not vertical lines in the water. So that's one, one a potential path towards getting, um, you know, getting this gear in the water is we know already, as you said, that the whales are here at certain times of year, there's more risk of entanglement. So we need to close certain areas where they're know that we know they're going to be coming to feed um, or when there's been high sightings. So allowing use of this alternative gear when those when the whales are present is hopefully a win win for everyone because fishermen can keep fishing. Yeah, and um, I thought that that was a really, really cool idea. Because normally you have the crab pot at the bottom and then there's that line that goes up and there's like a buoy, right? Holding it so that they can come back and get it. But the pop-up one is like on demand, right? So it's it's all at the bottom. And then there's different, um, 
mechanisms that release it, right? When the fishermen want to come back and get it. There was one, what was it, like a time released or like by radio or something? Yeah, actually, bo both of those are options. Oh, okay. I said, no, there's, um, and I know you said there'll be links to our report, which sort of shows all the various uh, systems that are in development. Um, and, and they work a little differently depending on, on the system. Some are released, um, as you said, like an on-demand where the boat comes up to the trap and they press a button in it and it releases the buoy from the bottom. Some of them are almost like airbags that lift the trap to the surface. So there's different, different systems depending on, on what company you're looking at. But the time release is one that I think is offering a lot of promise from a ease of adoption and expense, you know, as a, even if it's a, just a stopgap measure of, we know that you can put these um, links on, you know, to hold it tight to the trap at the bottom, but they actually just corrode in the seawater. And we, we have pretty good science and the timing is actually pretty accurate that it's going to corrode and it so releases the buoy to the surface at a known time so the fishermen can be back where their pots are to retrieve the pots right when those time release come up. And so it's pretty, I mean, talk about science uh, really coming together. Like we know the corrosive timeline of the, you know these metals. So um, that is, I think, one that is a fairly inexpensive option that can be implemented uh, pretty rapidly. Some of these other systems, because they require additional technology, either on the vessel or on the traps themselves, can be more costly. But as more uh, fishermen are adopting these systems, particularly on the East Coast, because, because of the urgency with North Atlantic right whales on the East Coast, there has been a ton of attention and funding put into pop-up gear on the East Coast. So as we develop and see more adoption of those systems elsewhere, I think the prices are going to come down on those systems for fishermen overall. I, yeah, I really, I really like that time release mechanism. It's like using nature to help you, right? Yeah. It's like, it's going to naturally corrode. Um, I, yeah, that's, that is really great. Um, so one other thing, a little bit more generally, I know that you, um, and by you, I mean Oceana, have a um, policy recommendations out for what to do about whale entanglements. Um, and I would love to talk about the impact that policy recommendations have in general and what you're hoping that these recommendations um, to reduce whale entanglements will have. Well, in general, if we if we do our job right, you know, the, the policies should help reduce risk and we should actually see less entanglements on the water. Um, as I said, we saw a peak in 2016 that was really a really high year of confirmed entanglements. And we have seen entanglements come down as some of these measures have been put in place. As I said, California has a, um, a time and area closure system where when we, when we know whales are, are in the area, we're gonna close the fishery in specific areas. Um, and there's different zones based on where the whales might be and where you can fish. Um, that is honestly a pretty time intensive activity, right? You have to have the data in on, there are uh, flights occurring where they're doing whale sightings, like surveys to see if whales are in the area. 
And then an, the entanglement committee comes together to give recommendations to the director of CDFW. Um, so it's a, a kind of time intensive process. So having more specific set dates for closure when we know whales are going to be coming to the area, just, you know, say, oh, we know the whales are coming in April, we're going to close the fishery, um, might just give more certainty to the fleet around that. Because the uncertainty for, you know, the I think some of the issue with um, policy is, of course, we, we got to get it right so it works for everybody and not everyone. If they always say, right, if not everyone's happy, you've probably done your job, right? <laughs> right? You're making those compromises of we want to make sure fishermen can keep fishing, um, but we also need to make sure that whales are safe and that we're complying with federal law. So there's that push and pull of what is the right answer and the path forward. And I think in California, we've done an okay job of that thus far. I think one of the best ways we're going to be able to keep fishermen fishing ultimately is to move to pop-up gear. But try not to have an outsized economic impact on the fleet while at the same time ensuring that whales are the, the risk of entanglement is coming way down. So we've seen some of that. And we know that with the 2016, the high spike, we had a lot of warm water that year that brought forage species in. Um, and that was what also then brought the whales in to feed. And so there was more co-occurrence with whales and where the fishery tends to be. And so when we know those events are happening and those things, are, you know, we're probably gonna see some more wa warm water this year. Um, we know that that's probably a likely scenario. Whales are gonna be coming further inshore and more likely to interact with the fishery because that's where they tend to fish. So I don't know if that fully answered your question on policy, but you know, there's always the real world implications and trying to make sure you get it right. And then, and then being adaptive as things move and change, the ocean's constantly changing, uh, behavior's changing. And so we have to be adaptive as well. And then also making sure that there's certainty for people, both for, both for conservation stakeholders, but also for fishermen and, and the fishery itself. Yeah, yeah, um, most definitely. It is, it is definitely a balancing act of meeting needs, whether it's the whales' needs or the fishermen's needs or the people that want to eat seafood. <laughs> um, so, on that note, um, how can our listeners be involved? How can they help? Well, there's many ways to help. Um, we are constantly advocating uh, right now, uh, primarily at the state level uh, in California and Oregon to get stronger you know, risk reduction measures in place and to really catalyze the adoption of pop-up gear. So we have uh, ongoing work in both states and you can go to oceana.org slash whalesafeoceans it's oceana.org slash whale safe oceans. And there are many ways to weigh in. We often have uh, letters that can be sent to decision makers. That's a big part of our work is making sure that the science and solutions are put in front of decision makers and that the public is weighing in to say that this is something we want to see. So if listeners are interested in learning more and um, seeing our whale entanglement report and other materials that have been mentioned. That's a great, that's a great first step right there. Yes. And that will 
that will be in the show notes. <laughs> so don't worry if you missed oceana.org whale safe oceans. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing the important work of Oceana. This is one of many, many issues that they address. And it was an absolute pleasure seeing you again. Definitely. I realized I did. I failed to speak about one issue that if you want to cut back to it at some point, we could do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bring it up. Bring it yeah. up. <laughs> so one of the big issues with entanglements that we have experienced is attribution. We don't know a lot of times where the gear has come from. So gear marking is a major effort right now in all three West Coast states. There is some work to try to coordinate that at the federal level so that what each state is doing is you know, not going to impact what another state is doing, or they don't accidentally mark things the exact same way. So we have been advocating for better gear marking and line marking, um, because you can imagine if a whale is dragging these for six months, fishermen use all different types of line and buoys, and it can be very hard at times, or sometimes there's not a buoy attached. So it's hard to identify what fishery the gear came from. And that's a major issue when you're trying to look at management measures and policy if we don't know when, where and when the whales are getting entangled. But if you can attribute that to a specific fishery and even potentially a specific vessel, we, the vessel will hopefully know where they place that pot so we can know when that whale was entangled and where and better address that. Um, and that's been a major issue is, is actually attributing the gear entanglements to a specific fishery. M most times we don't, we don't know where it came from. And that makes it very difficult to implement management measures across the whole West coast. And, you know, we've seen Oregon gear end up in, in Baja we've seen, you know, so they, they can drag the gear for quite a while. And so just because you see a whale entangled off California, doesn't necessarily mean it's California gear. You can maybe make a better, you know, a educated assumption about that, but it is very difficult to know for sure unless you can identify the gear. So that's a big part of our campaign as well as just to get better gear marking, which won't in and of itself reduce entanglements, but it'll help us better refine our management measures and risk reduction down the road. Yeah, because then you'll know where it's coming from and it will help you address the issue because it's it's not, you know, law sort of says, oh, we're this jurisdiction, we're that jurisdiction, but whales don't care, right? So it has to be like a bioregional approach, right? Because the whales are going to go where they want. Um, so yeah, that's that's good. Let's let's mark that gear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we want to know where it's coming from. And the big the big thing we're trying to work on now is line marking. So actually having distinct line for each, you know, whether it's woven with different colors or patterns so that it's really easy, because usually that's the thing you can see the most of is the line. Sometimes there isn't buoys, you know, you can't. But if we can see the line um, and know right away, oh, it's, you know, blue and green stripes, that's from this fishery. Um, so that's that's sort of the way that, um, we're envisioning that work to happen. And, and again, making sure all the states are coordinated on that is really important. Um, and as, actually, as you said, with the 
whales don't care. It's not like they stop at the Oregon, California border and, you know, they're, they're migrating. There's a huge migratory path for humpback and gray whales. And, you know, they're not going to stop based on which jurisdiction you're in. And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting legal system that we have in terms of the states authorize the fisheries, at least in the crab fisheries specifically, the states each authorize those. So they each need to get an incidental take permit for permitting those fisheries. But it is not necessarily then a look at cumulatively what's happening on the coast. So that's another major point we continue to make is that you have to look cumulatively, you know, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, we're looking at all sources of human caused mortality and injury making sure that we're looking at the bigger picture and not just what the one state is doing, particularly when we can't attribute gear right now, it's, it's kind of hard to, we're underestimating, you know, probably each state's impact, or we just can't precisely identify it because of that. Disentanglement is, you know, as you, I think you called it heroic, and I think that's right. The disentanglement teams that go out there, it is it is dangerous. I mean, especially humpbacks, which are what, one of the primary animals we find entangled off our coast, uh, one of the primary species. They are, you know, they're big, big animals, and you don't realize how dangerous it is to get that close to them and making sure, and then being able to cut and get close enough to cut in the right ways to disentangle and it's weather dependent and they try to track them best they can, but sometimes they just lose a whale. They'll see one, they'll be tracking it for a while, but weather gets bad and they have to, they have to stop and then they can't, you know, nobody sights it again. Um, and, and so that work is heroic and often, sometimes it does result in successful disentanglements, which is great. Um, but again, even, even when they do the, the wounds that are caused, I mean, the infection that can occur and, sometimes they're still fatal. So that's, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's really imperative that we get the vertical lines out of the water for, for our whales to be able to swim freely through their migratory pathways and, you know, not have, not have these interactions happen. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's, you know, it's kind, it's kind of wild to just be like, oh, let's go chase down this wild animal that weighs several tons, get really close to it with a sharp object and hope that it doesn't like twitch the wrong way because you know i mean it's it's probably tired and maybe scared of you because you're chasing it like i mean we don't we don't know like i mean there's been cool videos of like whales having beautiful moments with humans but they're you know you you don't know what state that animal is in and it is in need of help and so yeah it's um just speak speaking to the point of it being dangerous um it is but it's it's encouraging to see that those people care enough to do it and it's great also to know that there are so many people who aren't on video working so hard <laughs> to to prevent the need for those types of heroic acts yeah that's i mean ultimately it, it's so great to see especially when you see a whale freed you're like oh my gosh it's very you know it's like that heart it makes your heart just feel so good to see those sort of things happen but preventing them in the first place is where we want to get to so that that sort of solution isn't hopefully isn't needed anymore ultimately because 
it is dangerous for the ones who are doing it and it can even be dangerous for the whales. So it's, um, you know, it's not, not the ideal situation. We want to prevent entanglements before they happen. So yeah, that's the goal and really reducing co-occurrence and getting those vertical lines out of the water are our main tasks. So hopefully we, um, we make more progress on that going forward and um, love to keep you updated on it as we move forward. Yes, please do. And listeners, you all know how to get involved now. Check out the show notes. There's links. You can learn more. You can send letters. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be really great. We're, I know that the work is going to continue and is going to continue to be successful. We certainly, we certainly agree on that. <laughs>